This is America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., an initiative of the U.S.-based think tank International Leaders Summit, in partnership with Lancer Broadcasting's 2FM radio stations in Michigan and the Midwest, and Supertalk Mississippi Media's 12 radio stations and 50 affiliate stations in the South. We thank you for joining us on America's Roundtable. I'm Joe Lott and Sami, your co-host, joined by Natasha Sodorch, economist and co-founder of the International Leaders Summit and the Jerusalem Leaders Summit, and our distinguished guest hosts and presenters, the former governor of Mississippi, Phil Bryant, and the Honorable Morris McTeague, QSO. America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C. brings together leading voices from business, government, media, technology, healthcare, and the public policy arena. Subscribe to America's Roundtable on Apple Podcasts, Amazon, Spotify, Google, and Fireside. Visit iLeadersSummit.org. iLeadersSummit.org. Welcome to America's Roundtable. This is America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C. We're delighted to welcome Ambassador David Friedman. As the United States Ambassador to Israel from 2017 to 2021, David Friedman successfully guided unprecedented diplomatic advancements in the United States-Israel relationship, including moving the United States Embassy to Jerusalem. He is among a small group of American officials responsible for the Abram Accords, peace, and normalization agreements between Israel and UAE, the Kingdom of Bahrain, Sudan, Kosovo, and Morocco, for which he was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. He was honored by President Donald J. Trump with the National Security Medal in September 2020. And on this note, it is our great honor to extend a warm welcome to Ambassador David Friedman. Good morning, sir. Welcome, Ambassador Friedman. Good morning. It's really great to be with both of you. Thank you so much. Ambassador Friedman, Natasha Stardorch and I have taken time to read your excellent book, Sledgehammer, How Breaking with the Past Brought Peace to the Middle East, published by HarperCollins Publishers, which was released this past week. And first of all, congratulations on the successful release. Yeah, thank you so much. It was a great opportunity to tell what I thought was an important story about the uh, about the four years of what I think most people will agree were diplomatic successes of the Trump administration. And um, I wanted to I wanted to make sure people fully understood what happened, why it happened, and why it's important. Well, we would just like to encourage our listeners to certainly seek out the book Sledgehammer. It's a great book, Ambassador David Friedman, like you're taking this journey alongside you through those years. And you're a great storyteller. And if I could just uh, quote a brief passage uh, in which you communicated one of your interesting experiences. And I quote, President Ronald Reagan came for lunch in 1984. My father was the only rabbi in history to host a sitting president in his synagogue and at his home for a meal. He received that honor as the president of the New York Board of Rabbis. President Reagan's speech at Temple Hillel in October 1984 doesn't get the historical credit it deserves. I think it marks the turning point at which the Republican Party Party became the party of Israel. Ambassador Friedman, could you kindly elaborate on this event that took place at Temple Hillel and its significance and President Reagan's message on affirming our shared values and principles, the U.S.-Israel special relationship? Sure, I'd love to. I, I was 26 years old at the time, barely fluent in basic uh, American politics. And all of a sudden, we got a call one day. Father calls up and says, you're not going to believe this, but uh, Ronald Reagan's coming over for lunch, and then he's going to come visit the synagogue. And, and I couldn't believe it. I was a huge uh, fan of uh, President Reagan, as, as are many people. And so we had this opportunity to meet the president, to have lunch with the president. This was 
a month before he stood for re-election for a second term. We were living in New York. It was also coincidentally the last time a Republican uh, presidential candidate carried New York State. And so he, he spoke at my father's synagogue and he, and he said a few things that really struck me and resonated with me for many years to come. The thing that really uh, I remember him saying, because it was so powerful, this was at a time when Israel was, was suffering really uh, unusual criticism at the United Nations. Israel's never been well uh, received at the United Nations, but this was a really dark period of time. And President Reagan said to a, a packed house, my father's synagogue, that if Israel is ever asked to leave the United Nations, America and Israel will walk out together. It resonated with me. It was so powerful. And, and then he went on, when he went on to talk about, you know, he said, look, I was a Democrat. Uh, I didn't uh, leave the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party left me. And he went on to talk about the principles of, uh, of conservatism that resonated uh, with me and many others. And so um, this, was, this was entirely fortuitous. You know, we were not a political family. My father's a rabbi. He doesn't, didn't spend a lot of time in politics. But here, all of a sudden, we were thrust into this um, national stage for about, for about an hour. We had we had more than fifteen minutes of fame, but but not more than an hour of fame. But I remember it to, to this day. Ambassador Friedman, in your inspiring book Sledgehammer, you wrote, and I quote: "A building Jewish communities in Judea and Samaria was neither illegal nor uniformly inconsistent with prior U.S. policy. Judea and Samaria are where the rubber meets the road in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. It is home to more than two million Palestinian Arabs and half a million Israeli Jews." It is disputed territory. It is not, as almost the entire world maintains, illegally occupied territory. Unquote. Ambassador Friedman, from the time you joined President Trump as his advisor on Israel and the U.S.-Israel relations, and continuing in your role as the U.S. ambassador to Israel, you made clear that the promise of peace will not be achieved if Israel were to surrender the biblical land of Judea and Samaria. Ambassador Friedman, could you kindly share with us about the obstacles that you were facing with Washington, D.C. institutional establishment and self-proclaimed experts who seem to have not been intellectually honest, as you put it, or have not possessed the knowledge of historical facts, to say the least? So uh, it was very important for me, both as a lawyer and as somebody who had been involved in all these discussions for, for years, to put the context of Judea and Samaria in its right place. Now, all, all of these issues that Israel has faced all stem really from the Six-Day War in 1967. Israel all of a sudden found itself having tripled in size because of its incredible victory over Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, and, and Egypt. And so if you look at the various places, so you had you had the Golan Heights. Well, President Trump recognized that the Golan Heights was, was appropriately Israeli territory. And, and there the contest was between Israel and, and Bashar Assad, who's a ruthless butcher who gassed his own people. With regard to Egypt, in 1978, Israel made peace, Begin made peace with Anwar Sadat, and, and returned about 80% of the territory captured in the Six-Day War by giving up the Sinai Peninsula. The Gaza Strip is uh, is 100% uh, Palestinian, and Israel has no desire for, for that territory because it's, they've already uh, left the Gaza Strip in 2006, and, and people think it was a mistake, but that's that's already history. So what we're left with now is the one area, Judea and Samaria, which is home to both Palestinian Arabs and, and Jews. Okay, that's the only place where that's left that really you've got both peoples in, in the same area. It has enormous security considerations for Israel. It's right in the middle of the country. 
it has enormous uh, biblical uh, significance to Jews and Christians alike because the entirety of, of Judea and Samaria, it's really, you know, in fact, I'm, I'm making a movie about this this summer. It's, there's one road that really, it's, it's the whole Bible occurred within Judea and Samaria from Nazareth to Shiloh to Bethel to Jerusalem to Bethlehem to Hebron to uh, Beersheba. It's all one road, Road 60 within Judea and Samaria. So it's, this is not just, you know, a nondescript uh, desert territory. This is highly, highly historically, biblically significant to Jews and Christians. And, um, and the real question is, who does it belong to? And the answer is, we'll find out when the parties ultimately resolve their differences. But, but right now, from a, from a legal perspective, Judea and Samaria is part of the, the territory that was earmarked for Israel under the, the mandate for Palestine that was created after World War I, part of the San Remo Conference declarations. And for a brief period from 1948 to 1967, it was held by Jordan. But in those 19 years, no country, except for maybe Jordan and, and maybe one other country, recognized Jordanian rights to Judea and Samaria. The whole world considered Jordan to be an illegal occupier. Now, Jordan was escorted out of Judea and Samaria in 1967, and the land returned to Israel. So to, to make it clear, you know, Israel didn't take Judea and Samaria from another country. It, it got it from Jordan, and Jordan didn't have rights to it. And even to take it a step further, in 1994, in the peace treaty that Israel had with Jordan, Jordan relinquished all its claims to Judea and Samaria. So, it's, so people tend to think, oh, Israel grabbed this land from somebody else. Well, the answer is it didn't grab this land from anybody else. They had the right to it, and the, and the country that it took it from didn't have rights to it and gave, those, gave up those rights anyway. So, um, so what does that do? That, does that solve the problem? No. It doesn't mean that we don't have a problem. We've got 2 million Palestinians and 500,000 uh, Jews, and, and Israel is not prepared to absorb 2 million Palestinians into its country because it would, it would change the demographics, and, and, and they're not, those 2 million people are not interested in being citizens of Israel. So we have a, we have a problem, but it's a, it's, it's a problem of, of disputes. It's not a problem of illegality. Once you say that Israel is an illegal occupier of land, you take yourself out of an intellectually honest discussion. Because, look, if you steal something, the right answer is you should give it back. Okay, so once you say that Israel stole it, then, of course, it's a, you can't have a serious discussion. If you recognize the fact that Israel has legal rights to this territory, God-given rights as well, for those who believe, and then you say, okay, well, there's, 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 a, there's a population there that has to be dealt with. We have to deal with that population humanely, appropriately. They're entitled to all the human rights and all the uh, all the appropriate ways to, to, to raise their children and to grow and to have health care and infrastructure and education. Every human being is entitled to that. But we can talk about that in practical terms, but not in ideological terms, which is the way the framework has been for, for so many years. And so it was important to me to uh, to place the, the rights, the competing rights to Judea and Samaria into the proper context. And Ambassador Friedman, uh, in your thought-provoking book, Sledgehammer, you provide a unique argument for the U.S. policy of peace through strength, which has been advocated by President Ronald Reagan and President Trump, and which the Biden administration abandoned. And you say, I quote, Arabs instinctively gauged the strength of their opponents and acted accordingly. Being perceived as weak was a death knell to a successful negotiation. And it wasn't just physical strength, it was strength of principles and values as well. And you continued, when American Jews offered the Palestinians the prospect of dividing Jerusalem and controlling all of Hebron or Bethel, the Palestinians see their American friends as standing for absolutely nothing. 
And then a true peace becomes unattainable because the Palestinians will never make peace with someone they don't respect. And people who don't honor their religious traditions most certainly are not respected within the Arab world, unquote. Ambassador Friedman, could you kindly share your experience in getting this point across to U.S. foreign policy establishment that peace through strength is not a choice, it is an imperative for America to succeed? It was a challenge to convince people inside the, uh, the State Department, um, which is really why, when you think about it, the, the successes we had were, were really achieved by a very small number of people. I mean, for example, when we, when we announced the Abraham Accords, the only people who knew about that in advance within the U.S. government were um, you know, a handful of people. And within the State Department, it was just Secretary Pompeo, who was, who was enormously helpful to this. But the, the State Department, the bureaucracy, you know, we, we, we didn't feel comfortable sharing with it because they didn't really understand what we were getting at. Look, and, and when I talk about, you know, the Arab world perceiving strength, that's probably true of the whole world. I mean, any anytime you have negotiations, I mean, people look you in the eye, and it's true, by the way, outside of politics, people look you in the eye and they, they try to gauge what do you stand for. Now, if everything is negotiable, if everything is a negotiation, if everything is up for up for sale, then, then you're going to get, you know, as, as they say in, in the business world, you know, you're going to get your face ripped off. You know, you're you're going to get you're going to get crushed in a negotiation because when people see that you don't really stand for anything, they 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 just they'll, they they keep moving. They incrementalize you to the point of extinction. Whereas um, my experience with most uh, people in the Muslim world, they're, they're they're religious. They're deeply religious and they respect religion. They believe in God. They believe there's a greater force out there, a greater power out there. And when someone comes in and says, you know, this stuff is all just you know, it's just real estate. You know, it's just real estate. You know, we'll we'll sit and we'll we'll figure it out. You're not, you're not going to get to a good spot. So one of the things that what I found um, was that in my conversations with people in the Arab world, and by the way, even the Palestinians who we didn't make progress with, but, but they, they respected us. I mean, when, when I spoke with them and they understood that we're not going to ask Israel to give up Hebron. I mean, Hebron is a place that Abraham purchased. It's in the very beginning of the book of Genesis. Abraham purchased this to bury his wife, Sarah. It then became the burial place of Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and 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 Rebecca and, and Jacob and, and Leah. You know, Rachel was was buried on, on the road to Bethlehem. But I mean, just imagine, imagine someone coming into the United States and saying, look, we, we want to make a deal with you, but you got to give us the Washington Monument. You know, you got to give us the, the Lincoln Memorial. There's, there's no price at which the United States would, would give up the Lincoln Memorial or the Washington Monument. I mean, nations have, have histories. Some have longer histories than other. Israel has a glorious history that goes back thousands of years. It's the land of the Bible. And um, even Israelis who are secular, who, who even Israelis who are atheists, understand that some of these places are, are the bedrock of, of where our values come from. They're the wellspring of Judeo-Christian values. And, and they're not negotiable. They can't be negotiable because then, you know, if you negotiate those away, you, what have you have left? What's left of what you've, uh, of what you've agreed to? So I, I think that, Arabs respect that. I certainly do. And, and my feeling was standing for these types of principles and values was not only critical to America's interests, but it was actually the pathway to traction with regard to a peace process. Indeed. Ambassador Friedman, in your excellent book, Sledgehammer, that was released by HarperCollins Publishers this week, you explain in great detail the steps that were undertaken that brought together the fruition of the historic Abram Accords. We certainly want to keep a lot of that for readers so that they can get the book and read in detail, so we don't want to give too much away at this moment. Uh, but you shared in the book how Major General Miguel Correa coined the name 
And at that right moment when leaders from the Middle East and within Washington, D.C. all agreed. And uh, could you explain to us uh, and our listeners uh, the significance of the name the Abram Accords and what it means to the Middle East and people of faith in America and around the world? Well, sure. You know, first of all, you know, we were so caught up in the moment. I understand that the Abraham Accords, the first one was with Israel and the United Arab Emirates. And, you know, we were, we were just so all consumed by this historic opportunity. We weren't thinking about, you know, branding. Right. You know, we were thinking about, we just wanted to get this thing done. And so we had a phone call scheduled in the Oval Office with, between President Trump, Prime Minister Netanyahu, and Crown Prince uh, Mohammed bin Zayed of uh, the UAE. They were going to have a call. They were going to agree to normalization. They were going to agree to the Abraham Accords. We were then going to call on the press, uh, announce this, and it was going to. It was. Going, we knew it was going to shock the world because nobody knew about it. This was a. This was an absolutely game-changing moment. So that's what we're focusing on. And then General Correa comes walking down the hall and says, "Well, we need a name." And I said, well, "What do you mean?" <laughs> well, we, need a name. <laughs> you know, we have the. Uh, we had the Camp David Accords. We had the Oslo Accords. We need a name. And uh, yeah, well, what do you have in mind? And he said, the Abraham Accords. And I said, oh, that is a such an inspired name. And so, you know, literally 10 minutes before we went live with this process, I called up Ron Dermer, who's the Israeli ambassador to the U.S. We called up Yusuf Al-Ataibu, who's the ambassador of the UAE. We got their clearance. And then we just announced it 10 minutes later. And then President Trump, as we were announcing it, President Trump asked me to explain the, the significance of the name and, and how it came about. And of course, I wasn't going to say, we just thought of it, you know, five minutes ago. So I, so I said, but I did say, and, I, and the reason why it resonated with me, you know, Abraham was the father of many nations. God made Abraham the father of, of many nations, both of the, uh, the Jewish faith, uh, derivatively the, the Christian faith, and of course, the, the Muslim faith. And he's referred to as Abraham in the Christian faith, Ibrahim in the, in the Muslim faith, and Avraham. In the, in, the, in the Jewish faith. And, and therefore, there's no single, no single figure in history who better represents the coming together of these, of these great faiths than, than Abraham. And, and I'll tell you, normally, you know, like, you know, there, there are people who spend their entire lives working on brands and understand the power of brands. I'm not one of those people. But once we came out with the name, it really served us well because instinctively, everybody understood what it was. You know, as soon as people, ah, Abraham, of course, Abraham, the father of all these great faiths. And so kudos to General Correa. It was an inspired uh, moment. Look, I think everything we did was inspired by God. I give God all the credit for this. So I'm going to assume General Correa had the same, the same moment you know, that I had several of during this process. But it's, it's, it's a very powerful name for these agreements. And when reading the book, Sledgehammer, we took out of the book that same message that you're just sharing with us. It appeared that the hand of Providence really guided you and the team through this process because, of course, there were hurdles and then, you know, hitting a wall. Uh, but there were such significant breakthroughs as well. In a sense, a miracle after miracle with all these achievements. And that was certainly uh, very telling in how you presented the story of what transpired during these very important years uh, that led to some of these key historic developments i felt that way certainly and it does run through the book and i you know i make the point that going back to 2016 or even going back to maybe 2004 when i first met donald trump i mean the probability that we would meet 
that I would represent him. We would have good outcomes. I would develop a friendship, credibility. He would run for president. He would be elected. He'd nominate me the ambassador. I would go through the confirmation process, notwithstanding all the headwinds and get through that. I would then be able to take on the State Department. We'd be able to make, make progress that we did. We'd be able to you know, move the embassy and recognize the Golan and come out with the peace plan. And then with all that, bring uh, four or five Muslim nations into normalization with Israel. Uh, massively improbable, um, so improbable, I would argue, you know, maybe statistically impossible. And so that's why I really saw the hand of God motivating uh, and driving so much of this, because I don't know that this could have happened except in the context of, of divine intervention. Actually, Ambassador Friedman, I was just going to reiterate what you said right now, and that is that uh, you, as the U.S. Ambassador to Israel, follow through delivering on promises one by one while fighting the forces of bureaucracy, opposition, inertia, and uh, Israelis' protracted parliamentary elections as well. <laughs> so you were instrumental in Trump's declaring Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, as required actually by the Jerusalem Embassy Act of 1995, which was postponed by presidential waivers in the meantime. Then you were also instrumental in moving the U.S. Embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, recognizing Israel's sovereignty over Golan Heights, and signing of the Abraham Accords, among others. Uh, your and President Trump's courage and leadership during these four years of the Trump administration led to these amazing historic accomplishments, which, which we have to build on now. Ambassador Friedman, could you kindly share with us the most important factors or ingredients, if you will, of what was crucial for your success after decades of failed policies? Well, look, I think the most important ingredient was to have... Uh, President Trump in the White House, because ultimately, whatever I did had to be approved by him. And he had a he had to sign off and give me the runway. You know, ambassadors typically um, are not policymakers. Ambassadors are, are typically people that wait by the phone. And occasionally it rings. And when it rings, they pick it up and they're told to do something. And they do it. And in my case, the president made it clear I was to to lead US Israel policy. So I had this uh, enormous opportunity. Now, I took the job, I was, you know, 58 years old, and I had a lot of life experience. I, I didn't take the job in order to get a promotion or get a good report card or somehow get a, get a fancy title. I, I came in with an agenda. The president knew what the agenda was. And, and I was always prepared. I was always prepared to be fired if, that's, if, if my views were not uh, in alignment with the White House. I didn't think that would happen. But my views, look, I, I'm, I'm coming in here, I'm, I'm so steeped in, in knowledge of this area, I know it well, I have a strong view of what should happen. I'd like to move the president in, in that direction. I think that's where he wants to go. If he wants to go that route and, and is willing to give me the, the runway to do it, that would be great. If he's not, I'm never going to undercut the president, I'll, I'll let somebody else take my spot. But it was always, you know, in my view, if you're a political appointee and you come in and you actually have a job that you want to do, you have to be prepared to be fired. I mean, you have to be prepared to stand on principle. Uh, again, not in a hostile way, not in a threatening way. But, you know, if, if your principles can't be observed, then you have to let somebody else take over for you. Once you start compromising principles in politics, it's a slippery slope. You never recover. And so th that was the way I, I came to it. It's much more important to me that I leave this job with uh, with my wife respecting me, with my children respecting me, with my friends respecting me. That's what I care about. It's not having the job. It's, it's having the job and leaving it uh, with dignity and respect. And, and so I, I think that's what's important about political appointees. Careerists, they're there for their whole lives. I mean, so they're going to they're gonna go along. They're going to be flexible. They're going to move, you know, with the winds of change. They're going to navigate the politics. 
I understand that if you want to be in the State Department for 30 years, that you have no choice. But I came in and I knew that I'd be there for a maximum of eight years, potentially four, which is what turned out. And so I wanted to make every day count. I wanted to make every day a step forward on the president's agenda. And if I and if I thought we were we were not moving there, I'd, I'd want to have a serious discussion with the president. So, I mean, that, that I think is the critical ingredient that I would recommend to any political appointee, especially if you're an ambassador in a, in a, in a tough region. It's not about making parties. It's not about putting on a black tie and going to a dinner. I mean, it's really about advancing the America, the American agenda in, in a foreign land. Ambassador Friedman, what would your message be to President Joe Biden and his team on the importance and urgency of expanding the Abram Accords? Uh, We have observed the fact that the Abram Accord funds were dropped. Uh, There has been sort of hit and miss along the way. But what would you suggest as your recommendation from having served as the ambassador of the United States to Israel? President Biden came in uh, with an agenda Part of his agenda was to reverse everything that, that we had done in the Trump administration. You know, reasonable minds can differ about various policies, but our policy in the Middle East, I don't think any reasonable mind can argue that it wasn't successful. And so I would encourage the Biden administration to, to recognize successes where they exist and build upon them. Now, you're not going to build upon those successes uh, by projecting weakness. I mean, that's, that's certainly, a, a, I mean, to me, the biggest thing that, that hurt me the most was seeing the uh, evacuation of, Af- of Afghanistan, some of those pictures, those heartbreaking pictures of people clinging to American aircraft. It made America look weak and it caused America's allies to really question whether, they, whether America is a reliable partner and can be trusted. That's, that's tremendously damaging to advancing the Abraham Accords. I think we should demand accountability from the Palestinians. We've done that in the past. I think throwing money back at them, which is what the administration is doing, throwing money into UNRWA, which simply foments you know, hatred for another generation of Palestinians against, against Israelis, is a mistake. I mean, we, we need to get accountability. And, we need, and I think that you know, the Palestinian strategy was, was very effective. They said, we just have to wait out Trump because if we get... If we get uh, a Democrat, we'll be, we'll be back in businesses, unfortunately, where they are. The most important thing for America, really, America must project strength and fortitude throughout the world. The world, the world looks to America to lead. There was a time when there were two superpowers, but for the last 20, 30 years, there was one superpower. I'm afraid that we're heading back into a dual superpower mode, which is extremely dangerous. You know, as China rises, as China makes alliances with Russia, as they'll align themselves with Iran... Uh, we're heading back to um, to a Cold War, which sapped so much energy and uh, and prosperity from 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 the world. So you know, America needs to lead. They need to lead with strength. They need to lead with principle, with morality, with courage. And uh, you know, regrettably, uh, I, I think we have a lot to improve right now in that area. This weekend on America's Roundtable, we are joined by Ambassador David Friedman, the author of Sledgehammer, How Breaking with the Past Brought Peace to the Middle East. It's available in stores everywhere and also online by visiting Amazon and other locations. And we would just like to encourage you, if you'd like to share this interview, please do so by visiting iLeadersummit.org, supertalk.fm, and also Spotify, Apple Podcasts. Ambassador David Friedman, we thank you so much for joining us on America's Roundtable. We truly appreciate your continued leadership in the public square and encouraging all of us to advance our shared values and principles. Thank you, Ambassador Friedman. Thank you so much. I, I really, really enjoyed our conversation. It was terrific. Thank you. 
Likewise. Thank you. This is America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., an initiative of the U.S.-based think tank International Leaders Summit in partnership with Lanza Broadcasting's 2FM radio stations in Michigan and the Midwest and Supertalk Mississippi Media's 12 radio stations and 50 affiliate stations in the South. We thank you for joining us on America's Roundtable. I'm Joe Ladinsami, your co-host, joined by Natasha Sodorch, economist and co-founder of the International Leaders Summit and the Jerusalem Leaders Summit and our distinguished guest hosts and presenters, the former governor of Mississippi, Phil Bryant, and the Honorable Morris McTeague, QSO. America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C. brings together leading voices from business, government, media, technology, healthcare, and the public policy arena. Subscribe to America's Roundtable on Apple Podcasts, Amazon, Spotify, Google, and Fireside. Visit iLeadersSummit.org. iLeadersSummit.org.